Welcome to Bonehead Weekly, and this week we are so excited to have the writer, director, comedian, may I? I mean, you wrote so much comedy, Carl Gottlieb, and really want to talk to you about a lot of it. I mean, from the Smothers Brothers to Flip Wilson, it's amazing. I mean, you were in Second City, you were in your own comedy group. By the way, if you've noticed, I've done my little research. I know you posted before about people not doing... No, I, I was I was never in Second City. I, you weren't. Was, you, no. you need to get your IMDb fixed. He was on the committee. I was in the committee. That's I different. know you're in the committee, but it also says that you also were in Second City on there. Huh. Never. Okay, I apologize for that. Well, so much for that. I'm just going to go walk off set right now. So sorry. <laughs> just go shoot yourself. Yeah, three minutes in, you've already fucked up. <laughs> read this. I've of course I've always wanted to read it, and it gave me the chance to do it. The Jaws log. We've got several questions for you today. Um, not only one Jaws question. I want to go ahead and get it out of the way. Please. Why in the hell have you... Ne- so we're, I was listening to Gilbert Gottfried. You did a great job on Gilbert's show. That was, that was one of the great podcasts, I must say. Yeah, you were fantastic. Gilbert does a fantastic show. He and his yes, producer, they do their research. But he asked a lot of Jaws questions on that show. But Gilbert's allowed to do it. Yeah. The, the thing is, is... I have a hard time believing one of your answers and it was about you writ you wrote jaws one then you wrote jaws two they ended up bringing you back right paying you a little bit more money getting there and you talked about brown and zanuck being cheap bastards correct yes okay you wrote jaws three and then you didn't write jaws four and you say you've never watched it how do you you had how i'm not saying it's a good movie i'm just thinking if i'd written the first three i would have out of morbid curiosity for the last 30 years had watched it. Nope. I had no interest in watching it. I knew it was a bad movie and there's nobody who says anything good about it ever. So, you know, and, and having done so much with the franchise, uh, you know, why, why make myself angry or why get depressed or why, I mean, there's no reason for me to watch it, so I never did. And I'm happy to say to this day, I never have. It's an hour and a half of your life that you would have never gotten back. That's true. Yeah, it is is an hour and a half of my life. And it's, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, you know, it's such a commercial enterprise. It's, you know, bad enough. I did two and three for the money. I don't think it was bad. We're capitalists. Well, two, you know, two was actually a be- one of the better sequels of all time. And until Godfather 2, it was the best sequel of all time. But, uh-huh. and three, you know, Joe, my friend of mine was directing it. And he, Joe Alves, the production designer on Jaws 1, just for our audience so they'll know. Yep, and Joe Alves, you know, they got in trouble and they called me and I was, I was free and I was able to go down on location and do my thing again working you know with with everybody on location with a producer who was even a stingier bastard than Zanuck and Brown (laughs) the dreadful Alan Landsberg but uh and by that time I was I I was through I mean have you ever had that you know like when you've had all you can eat pancakes and somebody brings you another pancake you know you go no, I, I don't, I don't think want I'm that shit. Pancake for a while, right? And that's the thing with 
Jaws 4. So, you know, it's a, it's a dish that I have no, no taste for. I'm, I'm done, basically. Well, I'm a, go ahead. I'm a fat bastard, so I've never heard just stop eating pancakes. So yeah. I'm probably, you're probably better at restraining yourself than I am. But I, yeah, it was just fascinating to me because I would have thought over the years, curiosity would have got the best of me just to put it in and say, well, shit, it's got Michael Caine in it. Yeah, but he's such a whore. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> no, he's worse than most. I mean, Michael Caine never never met a money party he didn't turn down. And he always does a workmanlike job. And, you know, you get my, you pay Michael Caine, you get what you pay for. Uh -huh. He's a conscientious actor and all credit to him. But, uh, you know, I don't need to see another Michael Caine performance of... I don't know. I just, I just no need. You know, I have no, no, no desire for Jaws four. It's it's. Well, that was really my only Jaws question before we got started because I, I that was the thing that was just clicking in my head and I couldn't find and I'm sure you've been asked it before but I couldn't find anywhere where someone was like why haven't you watched Jaws four? Because it's a turd on a plate. Why would I? Right. Did you replace? Did you were you rewriting Matheson? Was Matheson one? I, I actually haven't looked up Jaws three screenwriters. Was Matheson one of the? Was Richard Matheson one of the writers? Yes, Matheson wrote I think the first draft. Okay, that's what I thought, and I, I honestly, goodness, I looked back that to check that. Yeah. Well, at least you're rewriting some roles. I mean, I'm in good company. Yeah, you're in good company. <laughs> the man who wrote the best best haunted house book of all time, actually, the Hell House for me. I prefer it over the haunting. But let's get back to you. So I kind of like to start a little bit about your interests, where if it was an interest in just entertainment, working in show business or movies and comedy what what led you there in your childhood maybe i was always a writer i was always glib and facile with words i couldn't i cannot remember when i couldn't read i uh -huh. was reading books when i was seven i mean book book not not comic right. books, the children's books i was reading robert louis stevenson and well you know reading the classics yeah uh, and uh, in high school, I won the prize for English composition. When I got to college, I edited the City College Humor magazine. I wrote, uh, wrote material. Uh, when I transferred to Syracuse, I wrote a weekly column at the uh, Syracuse Daily Orange. So I was always a writer. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated Syracuse, I, mean, I had a dual major, theater arts, yeah. and journalism. I went to what is now the Newhouse School of Communications, but at that time it was just, you know, uh, Syracuse Journalism School. But it was one of the good ones. Syracuse, Northwestern, Columbia, that was where you went if you were wanted to be a serious journalist. And right. I did. I mean, I, you know, I, since I was facile with words, uh, you know, it seemed a natural choice. And the theater arts department did not have a language requirement so I was tired of, you know, trying to pretend I could understand French. <clears throat> so I majored in theater and it was a, a, a turning point in my life. We had a charismatic chairman of the department. He, he imbued us all with a love for the theater. So when I graduated, uh, I graduated mid-year. I graduated in January. <clears throat> and January in Syracuse, New York, is a gray and dismal and <laughs> it sounds awful. Freezing. It's a terrible time. 
So, you know, and then there's no ceremony, there's no cap and gown, there's no parade. I only had to do nine credits. I had two drama classes and a gym course that I had to complete in order to get my diploma. So I graduated and they said, well, you can come back in June and wear the robe and walk in the parade, but you know, you're done, get, you know. And I realized no more term papers. You know, I was finished. I had nothing to do, I was out. <clears throat> so before I returned to New York City, which was my home, I said, you know what? I'm a theater and journalism major. If I can possibly help it, I am not gonna do any part-time jobs. I'm not gonna be a office temp. I'm not gonna be a cab driver, a carpenter, a merchant seaman, uh, you know, a bartender. I'm not gonna do any of those things. I'm just, if I can't make money in the writing or in the theater, you know, then I'll, I'll deal with it. But my, my goal is to make money writing, performing, uh, direct, you know, being in the theater. Show business. And, and you know, show, show business is my life. And luckily enough, I, you know, at, at first I was getting paid like 25 bucks and meals to do lights and sound for Greenwich Village Coffee House. And then I uh, went from there to uh, appearing part-time on stage, you know, emceeing the shows. And one thing led to another. And then I got drafted, I went in the army. <clears throat> and when I was in the army, despite the fact that my job description was company clerk, I worked in um, army entertainment, what they call special services. Right. It's not special operations and not- Special <laughs> services, yeah. Getting Bob Hope to the troops. Yes, my, my military occupational specialty was the same as the guys who hand out ping pong battles at the service club and run the projector in, in the base movie theater. <laughs> so my, that was, my uncle did the same thing in the Air Force. Right. So that, that, that so I was in the Army doing that. And uh, I was in, as it turns out, I was, a, I was performing pretty well. So I got into the All-Army Entertainment Contest with a friend of mine from the base. We had a comedy act, the two of us, which I cribbed from my friend Larry Hankin, who was in Second City at the time. Oh, and I ha I want to ask you about your best Larry Hankin story. One, a great character actor. Yes. So, mm -hmm. so I, I said to Larry, I'm going to do your pantomime. I'm going to do it with another guy. He said, go, yeah, go, go, go for it. So I did. And we were, I was, a, me and Dennis Parrish, were finalists in the All Army Entertainment Contest at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And we toured with the show and, and uh, uh, I lost, we lost. And I remember we, we were winning right up until the finals. And then, cause we were now, we were representing uh, Fifth Army, right? We were the Fifth Army entertainment team. Right. And somebody from Sixth Army, which was US Army Pacific, USAPAC, it was a, we were in the group specialty category. And this guy came out with a, a whack in a bikini and he was a yo-yo guy. He was a Filipino yo-yo expert. And for yeah. his finale, he put a he put a wooden match in the girl's navel and lit it with a yo-yo with sandpaper on it. And when that match burst into flames and the audience went crazy, I turned to Dennis. I said, "We're done." <laughs> I got to be honest. 
I'd like to see that myself. Yeah, yeah. I would have got up there and yelled and say, that's not a regulation yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when, the, when, the, when, the, when the gig was over, the Army, I had some, some leave time. And by that time, Larry had gone and opened the committee in San Francisco. <clears throat> so I went to San Francisco to visit with Hankin. I met the members of the committee. They needed a stage manager. They offered me a job as stage manager. And uh, I got out of the Army uh, and essentially went to San Francisco and became a stage manager at the committee, uh, where I did the license sound and appeared occasionally on stage in an improvisation, appearing as myself, as the stage manager. You know. But I got my laughs. I got laughs. And then um, one thing led to another. And then uh, I went to New York and worked for Arthur Cantor, who was a Broadway producer who had produced the committee on Broadway. And then I, Alan Meyerson came to audition New York actors for a company of the committee that was opening in San Francisco. And I helped him facilitate the auditions. And then I realized, hey, I can do this. You, want, you know, can I come? And he said, well, you know, it's up to Peter Bonners. He's the director of that company. So he checked with Peter and Peter said, I'd be happy to have Carl as an actor. So I went back as an actor and my life changed again, significantly. And the show was a huge hit in San Francisco, 66 to 68. And in 68, we came to Los Angeles to play at the Tiffany Theater on the Sunset Strip. And we were spotted, we were scouted there by everybody because we were, when we opened in LA, we got across the board rave reviews from the LA Herald Examiner, the LA Times, yeah. LA Free Press, the Avatar, the Hollywood Reporter, Daily Variety, and Weekly Variety. So we were golden. And Bob Altman saw the show and hired me to be in the movie MASH. And Smothers Brothers saw me and hired me to write um, uh, Glenn Campbell's show. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another. Every job led to the next. And I never had to do a, be a bartender or a cab driver. <laughs> that is a tremendous story, sir. I, 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 part of it, you're you're clearly extremely talented, but another part of it, just because we we talk to normally writers, producers, production designers, directors, always behind the scenes. We don't do a lot of actors, and that's one of the reasons we really wanted you, is that you you know that a certain amount of that and not taking anything away was just sheer luck being in the right place, meeting the right people and being at the right time. Totally. When, you, when you reflect on that, how, what, what are your feelings of like, how, how did that even happen? That's kind of a long winded, it's a very existential well, question. Well, I know, well, but I'm curious well, about your feelings about it. Well, the, the, the answer, my feelings are, you know, at the time, every choice seemed like the natural choice. I, you know, there wasn't, like there was something else I would be doing. Somebody said, you want to act here? I go, yeah. <clears throat> and my, my criteria for accepting the gig was generally, have I done this before? And if the answer was no, then I said, well, okay, I'll take the job. <clears throat> now, when I was writing television, uh, you know, jump ahead to like the Flip Wilson show, I could have, my, my agent at the time was very well placed in television and he, suggested that you know he, he said you want to work in television i can keep you working and the truth is if i had uh, concentrated on tv i could have probably created a show become a showrunner and you know become a billionaire or at least a multi-millionaire 
Yeah. But, uh, that that I, I would have, you know, then the, the fish movie came along and that was my first produced feature. So, you know. Well, you talk about that in the Jaws log. You talk yeah. about at the time, if you could get out of TV and go do a feature, you'd do that. That's what people would do. Yeah, it's that, not that, like that, it is now. No, that was where the money and the prestige was in features. Right. When I had an opportunity to do a feature, I grabbed it. Now, nowadays, the money and the prestige is in television. You know, features, you know, are, you know, comic book action movies and sensitive art films. And there's no nothing in between. A movie like A Few Good Men would never get made today. No, no, not at all. Even with that cast. With Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, you could not get a deal to make A Few Good Men. Certainly not for $30 million. No. Totally. So, they they would want to do it as a 10-part series on HBO. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the and, and now there's, there's, you can't even see all the good stuff on television. This is too much of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I do want to go back to talking about the committee, um, Carl, because one of, this is just a story about working with him. One of my favorite people of all time is Howard Hessman. Yes. Uh, you know, I grew up watching him on Head of the Class. And, and sure. let's, let, let's be honest, Police Academy too. <laughs> WKRP. And WK, and I, was, I, was, I was leading up to WKRP in Cincinnati. But you know, Howard Hessman is just one of those great actors in my time that I just always attach to. And I was just wondering what it was like working with him. Well, he, he was in the great tradition of committee stage managers who became part of the company as actors, starting <laughs> with me. Yeah. Howard replaced me as stage manager. And in 66, we both became actors in the same in the same edition of the company. And we gravitated toward each other because we had this commonality that we had both done lights and sound for other actors. And now <laughs> we were the actors and Jim Crano was doing lights and sound for us. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, we wrote a sketch together. We were, you know, improvised a sketch that was one of the first things that our company came up with that went into the show. It's a thing called uh, Wide World of War or Vietnam Sportscaster, uh, <laughs> in which uh, we play two color commentators. I still remember the, the opening riff. Please, mm. please. Uh, good afternoon, welcome. Uh, good afternoon, welcome. We're here today to watch. Uh, we're here to. We're, we're here to watch the uh, um, 80, 81st Airborne Division tangle with North Vietnam's crack 7th Regiment. Both teams undefeated and untied so far. I'm uh, looking out over the field. I can see the HU-1B armed U.S. helicopters of the 101st Airborne Division. They're windmilling in for a landing, and now they are on the ground, and they're laying down a nice space of fire as they deploy. What did you think of the landing so far, Red? And then Howard would say, yeah, you can tell the boys are up for this one. Both teams uh, undefeated and untied. You know, they're both firing long before they've seen anything. <laughs> and, and then we go on and we describe, we describe this battle. Uh, 42 years later. Yeah. Oh, that was amazing. That just made my year. And, and, and an overall <laughs> shitty hi year. There, hi, hi there. It's a beautiful, clear, sunshiny day on the Mekong River Delta where, where we are watching elements of the 101st Airborne Division tangle with North Vietnam's crack 7th Regiment, both, defeats, both teams undefeated and untied so far this season. 
Oh, that's amazing. That's awesome, Carl. Thank you so much, sir. I can go to bed now. Good night. Yeah, uh, we appreciate it. We'll send you over whatever your favorite drink is. Uh, that, I've got to add, and while we're there, I d actually didn't have it on my list of questions, but we always try to do these more as a conversation. Sure. I, I mean, you're in, you're in San Francisco from 66 to 68. Yes, summer of love, free space. You're right there at Haight-Ashbury. You're living it up. Ground zero for the Cultural Revolution. You and were there before it was over. Yes, uh, I was there. And again, you know, luck of the draw. That was the first time in the history of US pop culture when a cultural trends started on the West Coast and drifted East. Yeah. Until 65, everything was New York, Philadelphia, Boston. And you know, that's where it started. The books were banned in Boston. You became a hit on Broadway or off Broadway. Uh, but all of a sudden, with San Francisco, with the San Francisco Sound, Jefferson Airplane, yep. uh, Grateful Dead, all Charlatans, you know, Big Brother and the Holy Company, Janis Joplin. Yep. So musically, the 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 the, the focus had changed from Nashville and Memphis to and and uh, the Brill Building to uh, mm -hmm. singer songwriters in the West Coast, and so everything was happening in LA and in San Francisco, including the Haight-Ashbury. Right. And we, and we were there, I mean, no, no, we just, we just happened to be there and we were doing a show and the airplane and the Starship and Janice were all our contemporaries. We would do benefits together for the free speech movement. We'd go to see their shows at the Fillmore. Howard worked as an MC at the Fillmore when he wasn't being a stage manager at the committee. Right. Uh, so we, We'd go to the Fillmore and the uh, Avalon Ballroom, Winterland, Winterland. We'd see all the music shows. They'd come to the committee. They'd see our show. Uh, it was this wonderful period of cross-pollinization. I, I just can't yeah. imagine the cultural significance of, of absorbing that in person. That's yeah. And whether you had any idea why you're there. You know, you know well, it's like asking Hemingway and, right. uh, you know, so you're in Paris, it's 1922. <laughs> you're having a good time so far? Yeah. It wasn't until later that it became, you know, what it became. Yeah. It's like asking Hemingway, you know, 60 years, 80 years from now, Woody Allen's going to be obsessed about this period in time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so, 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 you know, we, we were in the right place at the right time, and we benefited from that. Yeah. I, Sorry, I, I didn't. And to this day, it's creatively one of the most exciting times in my life. Yeah, um, you know, I, I never can't imagine. I can't either. And it's so much so that it kind of bum fuzzled me for my next question. I was about to roll into, you know, hey, you're ready. And then I was like, no, I've got to go back and ask about this. And then, yeah. and then I could just talk to you about that for an hour because I had such a, doesn't matter. This is about you. So, Let's kind of skip forward a little bit and, and talk about, I'm imagining your political leanings. I follow you on social media. We probably complete, even though we're from Kentucky, I'm pretty sure we're all on board on one thing. But being with the Smothers, can you talk about it a little bit? I, I just can't, because for, for one, there's two questions here. Can you talk a little bit about Smothers Brothers? And do you mind talking about 
I would imagine that sketch rotting will prepare you for any timeline hard rotting job ever because it has to come out every week and you have to prepare and you have to do it and it's always different and it's always something completely different it's not like you're going to write for the friends and that the friends are going to do this it's going to be different characters and it's several different characters and how sketch writing prepared you for the rest of your career well That's a big question sorry no no it was it was great prep because when we were improvising you know, if it felt right, yeah, and you got it on its feet in front of an audience, and the audience reacted, it was you know instant feedback. You know, you, you would think of something, you'd perform it, the audience would clap and cheer, and you'd start doing it as part of the show. You know, you. So I got to the point where, as you know, just as a self anal self analytic performer, I'd go, yeah, this will probably work, and it got so that when I would write physically, instead of improvising, I'd have to write it on a piece of paper and hand it to another person. I could hand, I could write it with the knowledge that, you know, if, it, if it's not fucked up in performance, if the actor doesn't fuck it up, right. uh, it, this will probably get a laugh. And I'm rare, I was rarely wrong. You know, sometimes you're wrong, you're not right every time, but I have a definition of professional. I like to think of myself as a pro uh -huh. in the comedy world, in the writing world, and in, the, in, in everything I do. I like to think of myself as a pro. Uh -huh. Now, to me, the definition of a professional is that no matter how you feel, no matter what the temperature is, no matter you know what's going on in your life, when you've got a job to do, and this goes for professional carpenters and professional race car drivers and professional ballerinas. Yes. It's all the same. You perform at a level of competence that at its worst is serviceable, audience friendly, and uh, you know, you're not a disgrace. And nobody's going to be bored. Nobody's going to change channels. You're right. going to do a workmanlike job that you're not going to be ashamed of. That's what a pro does. Now, being a pro means that at the worst, your work is serviceable and useful and uh, you know, worth, worth paying for. Yeah. And when you're good or when luck strikes or you hit a lucky a combination of performer and material like when I was I wrote a sketch for Lily Tomlin and Richard Pryor you know how can you go wrong and when they add their talents to what you've done uh, you know you go wow you know this is this is uh, unbeatable you, know, you can't you can't beat this so the workman like pro level can rise to the level of art you know that, that, yep. that it can be but <clears throat> I'd rather be known as a pro than an artiste. Agreed. I actually know exactly what you're talking about. I'd rather be known as an as an entertainer than an artist or someone. Yeah. Now, but, in, but uh, real quick, just in terms of writing short form sketches. Yeah. You've written you've written full length TV shows. You've written movies. You but I can just writing sketches has to be hard because you have to put. A beginning, middle, and end in such a short frame, and it has to it has to hit. 
Unless you're Python, in which case you don't have an ending and Terry Gilliam just comes in and does the animation, which is the genius. But we've written a lot of sketches ourselves too. So that's probably the reason why we're asking a lot of these questions. And, and, and now for something completely different. Right. <laughs> that but, was the but, genius of Python. Yeah. But, but the, uh, uh, the, the work on variety television, principally the Smothers Brothers show, and then later Flip Wilson, Right. And, and also performing. There was a show called the Ken Berry Wow Show, mm -hmm. which I was a writer, performer, on-screen personality. Um, in doing that work week in, week out, in being a professional and trying to get it right, yeah. um, I'll backtrack a little bit. When I was <laughs> in college, I could not afford anybody to pay somebody to type my term papers. I had to type them myself. And I hated typing. To me, the greatest invention in modern office supply was caraceable bond. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and carbon sets. Where yeah. you didn't have it. Uh, so I trained myself in college. When I wrote a paper, I would do extensive research. I'd get my three by five cards all organized or yellow pad with the outline for my paper. And then I would type it. And what I typed was what I turned in. I, you know, I, I hated retyping. I, I avoided it like the plague. I didn't like rewriting. I tried try to get it right the first time. And that stayed with me all my life. So when I was writing comedy, I tried to get it right the first time. And very often when my material was performed by writers, I saw where I, you know, I saw, okay, I got that right. Everybody's laughing where they should be laughing. <clears throat> and, uh, and because I was writing on shows that devoured material, I mean, every, every week we had to come up with at least five viable sketches and a, and a monologue, sometimes two. Uh, you learn very quickly what works and what doesn't work. <clears throat> and because, you know, there's no time for rewriting except in sitcoms, Wednesday or Thursday night is rewrite night and everybody stays up till two in the morning. But then the finished product is what you shoot and then you know, on to the next. You, know, you, just, you don't have time to dwell on it. It's not like you're nursing it and it's not a first draft that you keep in your drawer and keep coming back to. You write it, you turn it in, you move on. And in my case, I was lucky that a lot of the people for whom I was writing were gifted performers. They would bring their own magic to what was being done. So, and I, that some of that would rub off on me. You know, when you're writing for Lily Tomlin, you know, if she just you know, does what she does, she, you know, she makes you look great you know, yep. because she's so good. So, you know, I, I had, I was working for good people. I was doing good work. Uh, one thing led to another. So sketch writing, is uh, it's a skill like any other, but yeah. I trained for it in the hardest way by doing it live, where if we failed in the committee, boy, we bombed. I mean, it was, you know, an audience silence and, you know, patter of applause and you just slink off stage and be happy there's another number coming up right behind you that will take their minds off what you <laughs> think that you just laid on the stage. But we're lucky, we were lucky. We didn't do that much crap. So... Joe and I can't can't say that. <laughs> Chad and I have done a lot of shit. 
Well, you got to raise your standards, boys. Raise your standards. Yes, sir. Well, <laughs> certain have, boys, the courage, have, have the courage to say that's not funny. We're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> At a certain point, you got to realize there's a lack of talent too. But anyway. <laughs> We're, we're good at self-deprecating humor. So moving back to what I was saying, how this household had to, some writers can be precious of, about their words. They can, and I can be precious about their words. I mean, and not want them changed. So if you have someone, you mentioned Lily Tomlin, you mentioned Richard Pryor, both of these people are comic geniuses. So if they change something, I'm assuming that you didn't get mad. No. Right. And it was, and it was usually probably for the better. Sometimes, but every now and then, uh, you know, this happened with the, well, it happened with the Smothers and with Flip Wilson because they were stars. Yeah. And everybody loved whatever they did. And every now and then, um, when I was writing, uh, I was writing with Lorenzo Music. He was my writing partner on the Smothers Brothers show. Who was also he, a fantastic voice artist for yes. everyone out there in the voice of Garfield. Sorry, I don't mean yeah. to interrupt. Just to yeah, let Carl, you have you have worked with several of those icons for me because yeah. I'm a huge I'm a huge cartoon freak from from a childhood. And Lorenzo Music was was God to me. So go ahead. So as a matter of fact, I was just talking to Mark Evanier the other night, and I, I've worked with all three voices of of Garfield. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you have Bill Murray. Yeah, yeah. So, so the the uh, uh, what was the point I was going to make? Um, oh, about there being stars. You know, Flip Wilson oh, yeah. and the Smothers okay. Brothers. Are stars. So, so Lorenzo and I used to write the opening monologue for Tom and Dick Smothers. Right. Now, when they started the show, they had a backlog of you know a night, two hour nightclub act that they could pirate, and they could use bits and pieces of from their act. But eventually, after two years on the air, they ran out of material from their act and they were had to do fresh material and Lorenzo and I were writing that mm -hmm. and we had a, I like to think we had a good ear for what the boys sounded like but every now and then they would try to make it their own and they would kind of substitute lines and say it differently mm -hmm. And it would not play as well. We wrote them better than they played themselves. And we'd look at each other and say, oh, for Christ's sake, you know, don't make it your own. Just read the cards. You'll get the laughs. Trust us. But every now and then they don't trust you. They, they you know, they want to make it themselves. They want to make it their own. So they add little touches and frills and flourishes. And they may ignore the setup or ignore the punchline coming where it's supposed to be. So you just want to smack them, but then you can't because they're the stars and better or worse, they're the ones who are going to bomb with the material if it doesn't work. So all you can do is say, guys, trust us and then hope for the best. Same thing with Flip Wilson. He tried to make it flip material and then it would be less effective than if he had just read it the way it was written. But you can't tell an act, you can't tell a star, you know, shut up and read the words as written. Right. Unless you're on the Mary Tyler Moore show, that writing staff, the cast of the Mary Tyler Moore shows realized that the writers were God and they never went against them. But was it that way in All in the Family? To a point, they, well, in the first, I've heard of, first you know, I've heard of Rob, of Rob Reiner and, you know, and Carol O'Connor fighting and arguing with writers. Yeah, you know, you, 
you argue with writers and and, uh, and, and as and with a series, you know, with a hit series where you're the lead, you know, you feel a responsibility and if a piece of material doesn't feel right, it's not going to sound right coming out of your mouth if you don't trust it. Yeah. You're going to be hesitant or you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you'll find a way to fuck it up, even if, if it's subconscious. And, <laughs> yeah. then, and, and then, and then it's when, when it's fucked up, you turn to the writer and say, see, I told you it wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, because you, you know, you didn't read it as written, but you know that's 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 a dead end argument with a star, yeah. so you you know you bite your tongue and you go on to the next week. So uh, back to Lorenzo, I gotta ask: Did was all of Lorenzo's funny was they was they all deadpan? Did he all, did he write like he talks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much so. He 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 had that style. That was his style. Yeah. Even when he was in a, even when he was an act called Jerry and Myrna Music. Now that is, you've lost us there. Sorry, we and I think we've done a pretty good job of keeping up so far, but you lost us on that one. There was an act, folk act, guitar and male male with guitar and spouse vocalist. Uh -huh. The act was Jerry and Myrna Music, and it was Lorenzo. Yeah. <laughs> And later he became Lorenzo and she became Henrietta. Uh, don't ask the circumstances, but that they changed their names. And by that time he was uh, uh, an all-star writer on, uh, on MTM. And, and, he, and then he was on Rhoda, he played Carlton the doorman uh -huh. with, with great success. And uh, we wrote a pilot together for the Lorenzo music show. I was going to ask about that. Uh, and uh, it did not go well. I think Lorenzo's ego interfered. Yeah. And uh, we parted company on that show. And, and uh, we, you know, we stayed social, but uh, we never worked again together. Right. Yeah, yeah. that does happen. <laughs> I barely want to. I barely want to get on the show with him every week, but I, I force myself to. And call. we've been friends for twenty some years, <laughs> college, so you can imagine all the shit that we know about each other day in and day out. I hate you so much. <laughs> yeah. well, like I say about marriages and good friendships, uh, you know, your friends are your friends in spite of themselves, not because, <laughs> not because of themselves. I mean, somebody is, you know smiley and handsome and thinks you're the top of the mm -hmm. cream of the crop and you know lends you money and supports you in everything you do and talks you up and is your cheerleader not hard to like a person like that because yeah. when that person is an asshole and forgets your birthday and <laughs> makes a stupid mistake and you know loses your loses your favorite keychain and you still like them you go okay we're friends that's that's what a friend is for and, and now it's just been so long. I don't know who else I would replace him with. Same thing. My wife says the same thing about me. So uh, yeah. Years ago, we decided that a wife was a good friend you could sleep with. <laughs> and I'm not into bald guys. No offense <laughs> to either one of you. <laughs> no. <laughs> now I've got, I've, now we've talked about ourselves too much, but back to, uh, I've got to ask you, you dealt with so many guest stars, so many, and this is a very cliche question, but I'm curious to ask who was some of the more troublemaker ones who you could probably see a lot of talent in, but they just weren't, 
being professional and who are some that you would just love to work with again if you could just go back in time who was somebody you would just pull aside to either have lunch or dinner or work with and just be in their presence again um bill murray was always problematic you know he was a genius but you you hire bill murray you get bill murray that's all there is to it yeah and he may or may not even answer your phone calls so uh but you know which is still true by the way right he doesn't even have an agent probably worse now than ever before but but you know when he delivers you get you know in many cases a memorable performance Mm -hmm. uh I've worked, uh, I know there's so many. I was just wondering if there's just somebody you miss working with or you just, the experience was. I, I, I really enjoyed almost all the people I've ever worked with. I was, again, I was lucky. I had good actors to, to uh, good actors to work with and write for. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the duds, you know, McLean Stevens, so what? You know, this life is too short to worry about McLean Stevenson. Uh, right one of my least favorite performers uh that's about it that's okay well go ahead i'm curious too so we'll, we'll get past the fish movie you're writing all this you and spielberg were trying to pitch some stuff you became friendly with that right and and and, and I get that. And I know a lot of people have a lot of questions about Jaws and I tell them that they should go out and buy this on Amazon or wherever you'd like the Jaws log. There's several editions. It's a fantastic read. If you're into filmmaking, I highly suggest it. I've loved it. It's been fan. I love the one particular story I love is about Joe Alves and building uh, Quint's, uh, not the cottage, but the house. And it's like, so it's going to be, it's six months to get the permit or it's six weeks for you to come back and tell me to tear it and fuck it. Let's just build it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's a great story. I, I, getting past that, you would later go on and write more movies. I mean, we we're talking about the jerk and caveman and then start directing. Can you talk to me a little bit about getting into directing the difference? And uh, you directed some television, you directed uh, the animal house show, a few other things. I could give a list, but the difference, yeah. how you well, got into that and from writing and the differences. The, the thing I, you know, having started in the three network universe when, you know, the yeah. featured director was God King, I, I, I got a feeling for, you know, gee, it would be nice to be God King. It'd be nice <laughs> not to have everybody second guessing your decisions. Yeah. And uh, you know, the easiest and most rewarding job is actor. You know, you come in, you say your words, you go home. You don't have to worry about the production, about the budget. You know, you, they bring you to a trailer. Somebody comes and take, take, leads you by the hand to the set. They point to the floor. There's already marks there for you to stand on. Uh-huh. You know, everything's done for you. And you, do you want a coffee? And they bring you a coffee or a water. And you say your words. You look at the other actor. They film it. And you go home. Yeah, perfect yeah. job. Then... <clears throat> If you're a writer, you know, you're called in, there's rewrites or the actors are changing the lines or, you know, we we need to cut three minutes out of the show. You know, there's all the complications. But the director says, I want it blue and I want it over here. And everybody says, yes, sir. So who wouldn't want to be a director under those circumstances? So when the opportunity came to direct, I jumped on it. Um, Steve Martin uh, did this, uh, uh, had Steve Martin had a 
three picture deal at Paramount and was going to do three movies there. Yeah. He asked me if I would right. co-write his first film with him because I had done, by this time I had done Jaws, I had done Which Way Is Up with Pryor, so my, right. my comedy credentials were in order. So Steve and I teamed up and as part of the run-up the studio or David Picker who was a very foresighted smart movie guy mm -hmm. said you know what let's do a short subject with Steve Martin and we'll put it in the theaters we'll give it to the exhibitors for nothing we'll put it on one of our big releases like Greece or, or something and the theater audi audience will get to see Steve the nightclub comic on the big screen and it'll help sell him now in the old studio days they would have taken him like Jack Oakey and put him in, you know, as a second banana and some yep. comedy movies. He would have been on the contract to the studio. He would have done half a dozen films and then they would have given him a starring role, kind of like Hope and Crosby or everybody right. else. <clears throat> but those days were gone. But if they did a short subject with Steve, that would be good. And then I, and I said, or somehow they said, I said, I, I can direct this, not having directed much in my life. Yeah. I directed some educational films for some friends uh, for, Nat, for I think Encyclopedia Britannica or something. But I, so I had a little experience and God knows I had been on a number of sets and I'd been an actor. So I, 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 you know, I knew what the director's job was. Yeah. So we got this really superlative budget and a great supporting cast, you know, Buck Henry, Terry Garr, uh, uh, some friends of mine from the committee, all the uh, supporting roles, many of them are played by, by improvisational actors, Peter Edling, Dan, Dan Barrows. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I directed this short. They had a big standing set that was left over from some Mae West movie. So they put us on this big set. I got to direct it and kind of nervous about it, but you know, as they say in show business and vaudeville, never let them see you sweat. Right. So I went to the first day of dailies of the footage we had shot. We shot for, I think, three days. And after the first day, I went to dailies, sat next to the editor. He assured me that all my coverage would, would cut. I hadn't broken any rules. And I walked out of dailies and everybody else was going to a commissary or get a drink or something. And I was by myself on the New York street at Paramount. And I can remember going, yes, you know, <laughs> yay, I, yes, I can do this. And then I never looked back and everybody asked me, can you direct? I would say yes. And then I think the next thing I directed was an episode of Laverne and Shirley, I think I did. And then, then I directed, uh, I direct, I, I, if anybody asked, I would say yes, and I would direct. Right. And I got a chance to do a variety of things. And uh, I like to think that I was a pro and I acquitted myself honorably. None of my footage was thrown out. Nobody had to reshoot what I was doing. I wasn't Jerry Paris. I wasn't a hack. Yeah. So, uh, you know, well, they, and, so, and then that led eventually to Caveman. Right. And the old phrase would have been, uh, the old one is, uh, don't let them see your sweat. The new one is fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Why, yeah. why you mentioned caveman? You mentioned caveman. So I want to talk about that because I just I I, I just want to wrap my mind around your your decision to make that movie because it's not only by the way if, uh, to our audience if you haven't seen caveman uh check it out you can watch it on uh on hbo max currently <laughs> which was a pleasant surprise when i got the streaming service right. but um you know the thing is how do you go about making a movie where there's basically no dialogue there's there's gr there's grunts in one words i'm, I'm just trying to uh that is an amazing that is a very ballsy move sir well it, it, we 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 came to it, it was a circuitous route. Yeah. Larry Terman and David Foster were producers. They were commercial producers. They, I think they had a deal at Warner Brothers. And they approached me. I don't know where we connected, but they approached me. And they said, do you remember 1 million BC? And I said, do you mean the 1930s version or the Raquel Welsh version with Raquel in a fur bikini? And Can I said, interrupt you real quick? Carol Landis, way better than Raquel Welch. Yes. <laughs> So they said, do you remember 1 million BC? And I said, yes, yeah, of course. And they said, well, we want to do the same thing, but funny. <laughs> I said, okay, prehistoric <laughs> funny movie. So um, we worked out a deal. It was a regular studio deal. My agent negotiated. And I wrote a film that was quite different from the eventual film. Uh, but I wrote, I wrote several drafts of a prehistoric comedy about a bunch of losers and how they become the genesis of mankind. In, in my first drafts, the non-losers spoke French. <laughs> the Satanist tribe spoke French. My guys uh, spoke English. Uh, but it, it was, a, I think, perhaps a little too heady, a little too progressive it sounds like mel brooks a little well, bit to me and i know you wrote it with rudy deluca but sorry keep curiously going curiously enough when i turned it in zen as uh, uh, and foster were not happy and they didn't want to go to the studio with it so they said we were thinking more slapstick more mel brooks <laughs> but what mel brooks think? is headier than people give him credit for but yeah uh, yes but he's also right lowbrow enough yeah the fart scene is not heady. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's several Kafka jokes throughout those movies, but keep going. <laughs> so they suggested Rudy DeLuca works with Mel, and you know, would you like to work with Rudy DeLuca? Now, I didn't know Rudy, but I knew his work. He worked with Barry Levinson. He had been a partner. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, you know, subject to me meeting with him, I had approval. Uh, so I said, let me meet with him, and if we get along, and we think we can collaborate, I will. So I met Rudy and we got along. He had a lot of good ideas uh, and he was certainly into the slapstick end of it. So we teamed up and we wrote a, uh, a funnier version of with, uh, with without language. Mm -hmm. Although the script, if you look at the early drafts, it, it looks like a regular script with dialogue, mm -hmm. but the parenthetical is, you know, the dialogue says, zug, zug, zoom, alundalano. But in the dialogue block, there's a parenthetical that says, you know, a took, parentheses, as if to say, 
<laughs> and then there's the line of English dialogue. Look out behind you, or you know. So the script was, you know, was intelligible, even though we were using you know nonsense syllables. Right. Uh, and then uh, that script, slapsticky and broad as it was, <clears throat> got a green light. Warner Brothers said, "Yes, we want to make this movie." So I called Rudy and I said, you know, great news, we got a green light. And Rudy said, great, can I direct it with you? And I had it in my contract that if the movie was picked up, I would direct. Uh -huh. And this was before the Cohen brothers, this was before all the collaborative directings. And I said to Rudy, I said, you know, I really don't think that's a good idea. Well, a movie should have one director. And by contract, it's me. So the contract and I'm going to direct the movie. Uh, and he got all frosty, he said, well, we'll see about that. And he went out and he told people how much of the draft was his work and not mine. And we parted company on a sour note and haven't talked much ever since. We were happy to, you know, and the movie came out and I had disagreements with the producers over what was funny and what wasn't. Terman and Foster for all their geniuses producers are not funny guys, they don't understand comedy. I remember at one point I lost my temper. It was a, a music cue or something. <clears throat> and I said, don't do that. That's, you know, that's a corny device, you know. And they said, well, we like it. I said, well, it, it, it's shit. It, 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 it denigrates, I said, I have written for every comic genius in, in the business. I've written with Lily Tomlin and Richard Pryor and Robin Williams and Flip Wilson. And if I tell you something is funny, trust me, it's funny. So Larry Terman hits me with the unanswerable argument. He says, Carl, we understand you're upset with the way we cut the scene. I was upset with the way you cut the scene. If it's a question of me being upset or you being upset, I'd rather you were upset. <laughs> I said, well, I am and I can't answer that argument. You know, that's, that's unanswerable. And, and you know, so they put, you know, and it is, that cue is less uh, valuable than it would have been if they did it my way. Later on, they wanted to change a, a joke. And I said, Jesus, that's not, you know, Trust me, the way I did it is really funny. And they actually went and cut it the different way <clears throat> and previewed it, and it lay like a turd. Yep. They put it back together my way, and it's the biggest laugh in the movie. It's when this, the insect gets crushed on, on oh, Ringo's face. That is one of the, I, I, uh, yeah. in preparation for this, sir, I actually rewatched it because, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one of the fun, that is one of the funniest. Yeah, and I, when, I, when they showed me the bug and loaded it with, you know, the, the squishy stuff, yep. I said, yeah, yeah, more squishy stuff, more, more, <laughs> and the more, the better. And they, yeah, thought, I, they thought it was too much. I said, you can't be too much with that gag. And luckily, I won that argument, and the gag is the biggest laugh in the movie. I got to admit that and, you know, the, the, uh, the, the discovery of how man walked upright and also the invention of modern chiropractor. <laughs> this is gold <laughs> but uh i do want uh one aspect of that that i was kind of curious because at the time i was surprised it even got through 
Um, the caveman group that comes in and meets, you know, after they're the kind of like the misfits, you know, you have Carl Lumbly as the African-American, you have the, the dwarf, but then you have the homosexual couple. And I was just kind of curious how that even got in there and got approved. They, you know, the, the, the actors came up with, you know, Ed Greenberg and, uh, I forget the other actor. They came, they came up with this like affinity. And I said, well, you know what? We don't have to, you know, point fingers at it. We don't have to, you know, they're just, right. we understand that this is a tribe of misfits. And if you guys are going to be gay, you'll certainly be misfits in primitive society. So yeah, you know, do, if you want to hold hands in the scenes, you know, go, go ahead. And, and, and they did. And, and so we had this wonderful ensemble. I just, I just love Ringo and uh, Dennis Quaid's reaction to each other when they walked in holding hands. They go, they go, ah. <laughs> then, then it's never discussed again. Yeah. I thought, I thought that was just a smooth transition, sir. So. Yeah. Well, it, 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 with, with comedy, it, it doesn't help if you, uh, as they, as the jargon, if you hang a lantern on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you know anything that you can throw away that is perceived you know it has to be thrown away artfully you can't throw it away with framing that you know robs the moment but if you framed it and shot it correctly and the actors perform it right you don't have to embellish it'll, it'll stand on you know trust the audience to get it right. that's, the, that's the hardest thing in comedy is you know fucking trust the audience they, they're smarter than we are yeah a group of 100 people in the dark is smarter than anyone, including Larry Gelbart and Neil Simon. Yeah. The audience tells you shit you never knew was true until until they tell you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what with modern comedy, that's one of the big issues. Because I, I talked to Joe about this. Is modern comedies, I don't laugh anymore. It's you know, there's no there's no subtlety to it. It's all like boom in your face and I, I miss that that's why I go back to the older movies the older comedies because that was an art that I feel like I've forgotten lately so really quick and I, I want to go back I would imagine you met Steve riding on Smothers Brothers Steve Martin yeah. right so that, that some of our audience would know he was he was on the show he was a writer he was a performer so he, you met him on Smothers right um, I knew him as a, a street performer I don't know where we had met. We had mutual friends. He was uh, playing the Ice House. He was, you know, mm -hmm. he was playing the Troubadour. He was, you know, as as he used to say, I know you're thinking, I know he would say to the audience, I know what you're thinking. It's just another comedy magic banjo act. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a great Steve Martin story. Steve Martin opened for Anne Margaret in Las Vegas. And it, was not, and it was not very successful. Right. And he was... Uh, he had a two-week deal, and they canceled him after a week. But during the week he was there, Elvis, who was playing Las Vegas, came to see Anne Margaret's show, as you know, as as they do. Right. And so here here comes Elvis and his entourage, and here's Steve Martin backstage near Anne Margaret's dressing room, and Elvis recognizes him from the show. He says, and he stops, and he says, "You're the comic, aren't you?" And Steve says, "Yeah, yeah, I am." And Elvis says. Young man, in that Elvis voice, I can't do it. But he says, right. young man, you've got a very oblique sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he transitioned to, you want to see my guns? 
<laughs> he was wearing three guns. He had a 45 and he had a, the Derringer in his boot. And he had another gun somewhere. And then his entourage went on to see Aunt Margaret. And Steve said, oh, I got to see his guns anyway. But it was a great line, his oblique sense of humor. Steve had an oblique sense, always had an oblique sense of humor. That's a fantastic, I've never heard that story considering that I've heard several times that Elvis's two favorite movies were, were, were was uh, Holy Grail, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, and Blazing Saddles. So you yeah, would yeah. think it would get Steve a little bit, but, and it's unfortunate he did not show him his uh, deputy sheriff badges that he also would have carried along as well with yeah. those guns. All he, right. He and Buddy Hackett used to carry their badges everywhere. Oh, Buddy Hackett did it too? I've never heard that before. Yeah. He was a gun nut and a, a badge nut. I can't imagine Buddy Hackett as a gun nut. It's just... Imagine Buddy Hackett as a gun nut. I guess we just know him in a different person. No, I, I, I was at his house. I don't know. I forget why. I don't know what we were doing together, but I, I went to his house and he showed me his gun room and he had, you know, quite a collection. And I had to tell him he had one, one particular piece that he was very proud of. And I had to tell him that it wasn't what he thought it was. <laughs> he thought it was a Navy cult, I, whatever it was. I said to, I had to say, him, no, you know, it's, it, it's not as old as you think it is. I mean, it, it is a Civil War piece, but it's not 1835. It's close to 1860. And it's a cap and ball. It's not a, you know, because I, I know guns. Do you really? Are you a gun collector? Uh, I'm not a collector, but I, I had, I was, I was that rare, a very rare bird is a liberal progressive who owns guns. I've sold the, I've sold most of my choice pieces, but I, I still have some guns. Well, I keep them locked up. I'm in liberal in Kentucky and own four and have never bought a gun. So I've just inherited them over the years, if that makes you feel any better. It just, they just come with, it's like osmosis. They just appear in the house. There's so many okay. guns. What kind of guns do you have? Uh, uh, wind, uh, just 870 Winchester shotgun. I've got a really nice uh, Model 66 uh, six, uh, Smith & Wesson 357, although I have never had this conversation with anyone on this podcast ever. You would be the first person that we've ever talked to guns about. Yeah, I'm yeah, I had a Smith and Wesson Model 19 combat yeah. 357 Magnum, and I had uh, I had a shotgun which I had the barrel sawed off to the legal length. Uh, I still have that, and I had a, a beautiful matched pair of engraved pistols, uh, Smith and Wessons, a K22 six-inch barrel, and uh, the 357 Magnum all beautifully engraved, hand engraved with gold inlay and ivory grips. I sold them for like four grand a piece. So who are some of the other gun folks that you hung around? I'm trying, oh, I've completely forgot his name. Uh, the, Chad, help me out. The director, oh, there's a great documentary. He wrote John Dirty Mil Harry. John Milius. John, Milius. John Milius, yeah, yeah. So did you and Milius shoot a lot? Because you would have, Lot, I've been hunting with John Milius. Me and Spielberg and Milius went hunting on the big island of Hawaii. Yeah? Yeah. You've got to tell me that story. You've got to tell me, uh, you've got to tell me having Milius and Spielberg and you in a room, I just, just talk about it. I can't even imagine Spielberg hunting. Well, Spielberg and Milius were, were close. They, right? they were great friends. Spielberg has a uh, Terrific eye-hand coordination. I mean, he's he's the genius at video games, and he's a very good shot. He's a 
you guys would skeet shoot on Sundays yeah, yeah, when yeah. you were running, right? When you were doing jaws. Emilius would take up skeet shooting. But we had this, uh, Emilius, I don't know where we got the idea, but we want to go hunting on the uh, hunting. Mm-hmm. So we booked a, a hunting excursion on the big island of Hawaii to hunt wild pig and doll sheep. So we fly to Hawaii with our guns, you know, and, and we checked into the Royal Hawaiian Hotel the first day. And within an hour of checking in, here come two detectives from Hawaii Five O from Honolulu PD, who are curious about these three white guys with all these guns, and why? And why? And we say, well, we're going hunting. We booked a guide, and we explain what we're doing. We show them the guns, and there was some handguns involved, which I think piqued their interest. But uh, it was it was all legit, so they let us go. I mean, they didn't book us or anything; they just had an interest. And then the next day, or two days later, we got in a four-wheel drive and went went out into um, out on the Big Island to mm-hmm. where where the critters are. Yeah. And we tramped around looking, didn't see much. Uh, Stephen and I stumbled on a sleeping sow with her cub or baby yeah. piglet. And we looked at her and Steve said, I, I can't, we can't shoot a sleeping pig. I mean, we, that's not hunting. <laughs> so something that we did made a noise and we startled the pig and it jumped and ran away. Emilius got off one shot with a handgun, but missed it completely. And so then we, we had to go go back and and, and we, we never saw any more sheep that day. We didn't, didn't see anything. And then I had, I got a call from my wife. She said, you got to come back to LA at a job interview or I had to come back. I, I, I couldn't finish the hunt. Right. So um, uh, I left. And the next day, they did get a sheep. Mm-hmm. Spielberg bagged, bagged a sheep. And they said, you know, do you want the fur? You know, if you, if, if you go, if you don't, we will t- take it to a taxidermist. If you want the, the, the pelt, we'll have it cleaned and stripped and sent to you. They, they make nice rugs, you know, area rugs. Uh-huh. So he said, yes, yeah, send, send me the sheep. So now we all get back to LA and um, a month or two passes, three months. Spielberg goes out skeet shooting with Milius. And then this package arrives from Hawaii with the skin, with the sheep. Now in Stephen's mind, the sheep has grown larger and larger. And he's expecting a rug, kind of like a polar bear skin rug. Yeah. So he unwraps the package and it's you know a little bigger than a bathroom throw mat but not much it's like a you know two foot by three foot sheepskin yeah and it's embarrassing because it's obviously like a very young sheep oh no so he rolled it up and threw it in the closet and never referred to it again (laughs) that was spielberg the great white hunter i've got to ask and this is one of those cliched hack questions but i i've I was sitting here listening to you tell because probably most people would never know that Spielberg was even around the gun. I, I just know because of the million stories and whatnot. But what are the, what is one of the things that 
that you know of Spielberg that people probably wouldn't guess something about him? He's a great shot. He's a great skeet shooter. Just he, can, great. He, he can run 80 or 90 skeet. You know, he can run 90. Huh. Wow. And he has, you know, and I don't know if he still owns them, but he had some beautiful Bianchi over and unders. Oh, really? Yeah. He, you know, yeah. He spared no expense. Well, he had the I don't money. Know, I'm pretty sure. I was, like I said, I imagine he still has them. I can't imagine Spielberg selling anything. <laughs> no. <laughs> So uh, there's before we get on to because I want to ask you about the Crosby book if we have time I want to talk a little bit about Doctor Detroit. Do you have time? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, a more, we'll, we'll we'll ask a few uh, just a couple more questions if you can. Yeah. So uh, Doctor Detroit, you got to work with Hessman again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that picture? Uh, once again, that was a case of they were already in production and they they had botched the rewrite. The director wonderful director he's still directing but he was not a comedy director Mm -hmm. so he was missing the comedy in the script and the script was written by a guy who wasn't very funny right um so uh the only guy the only reason the guy got the script made was he was coming off of a richard fryer film called some kind of hero yeah margaret kidder and nobody knew that it was piece of shit film and it wasn't funny mm-hmm. so he got he got this job michael pressman got this job directing dan Aykroyd uh off the off this picture that nobody had seen and the minute they saw it they realized oh shit we're in trouble this is not a comedy director so can we get a comedy writer and that turned out to be me so i went to location in chicago belushi had just died i was friends with belushi and, and Aykroyd from Saturday Night Live days, because we were yeah. all cutting edge. You know, everybody who was in comedy knew everybody else at that time. Right. It's a small group. Yeah. And I knew a lot of the Saturday Night Live people when they were in Lemmings before, mm-hmm. you know, even before they were spotted by, by Lauren. Anyway, so, uh, and it was Dan's, you know, attempt to forget, you know, to get past the loss of his partner. Uh, so he agreed to headline in this movie and I agreed to do the rewrite with him uh, or for him. So I went and I started to, doing the rewrite and they had hired Howard. And I was, again, a guy whose comedy I understood and I could write. I knew that whatever I wrote for Howard, he could deliver it. So it was, it was you know, it was a fun job. And uh, once again, like in Caveman, I was the matchmaker. I, I was writing for Donna Dixon, yep. and she and Dan hooked up on that movie and are together to this day, and the same way that Ringo Starr and Barbara Bach uh-huh. hooked up in Caveman and are still together this day. So I got, I'm batting 100 for, for matchmaking couples. Do they send you anniversary presents? No, no. no of course. They acknowledge that I put them together. Well, that's good. <laughs> Well, I know we're running out of time, so I would have loved to have talked to you about several other things, but real quick, what I, I got to ask, what's the, what's the one dream project? What's the one thing you'd still like to do? I wrote a great big tentpole movie about piracy. Oh. Before Mr. Phillips, I was the only one who knew about Somalian pirates. Really? Why yeah. did you know? I'm 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 eclectic. <laughs> I was uh, 
I discovered Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution of the United States to this day says that Congress may issue a letter of mark and reprisal. Yep. Now, you may ask, what is a letter of mark? A letter of mark is a pirate license. In the early days of the United States, when we didn't have much of a Navy and Britain was kicking our ass, mm -hmm. you would give a skipper a, a letter of mark that said you are authorized to arm and equip your vessel and go out and take prizes and profit therefrom. Mm. If you share, you know, so it was essentially a pirate license. So you could go out and you could mug a British ship or a French ship or a Spanish ship and, uh, you know, sell it and make money for your crew. Yeah. Now that exists in the Constitution to this day. Now, the civilized nations of the world gave up letters of mark in 1850-something. Uh-huh. But we didn't. It's like the Geneva Convention. We never subscribed. Right. We never signed on. So in, and in World War II, there was a guy who got a letter of mark, got his rifle, went up in an airship, and shot at German submarines off of Atlantic City. <laughs> Last time the letter of mark was used for real. It occurred to me, okay, what if a senator's member of a senator's family was kidnapped by pirates? Mm -hmm. Like in Somalia, which was happening all the time, yeah. or in the Straits of Malacca. Yeah. There was piracy. I said, what if the senator, using her knowledge of the Constitution, finds a guy who's a capable seaman, skipper, uh -huh. soldier of fortune, and gets a letter of mark and gives this guy the license to go after her daughter. And that was the genesis of this project. So I followed three disparate, the senator's daughter, a black skipper from Africa, and the soldier of fortune, Russell, the Russell Crowe part, mm -hmm. who's uh, uh, working as a deckhand on a private yacht that's taken by pirates. Yeah. And uh, the three of them, the, the African skipper, the soldier of fortune, and the senator put together a boat and a crew to go and rescue the daughter. Yeah. And they sail for Somalia and they get helicopter gunships. They, they get the US to Djibouti to get those South African, African command. Anyway, it's a big ass tentpole movie, piracy on the high seas. And I love the opening to this day is a crawl that says, you know, once a time, once upon a time, pirates roamed the high seas and took prizes. And then you cut to uh, the, just the front of a boat going through the water. And then you widen out. It's kind of a funky vessel and it's kind of crappy and there's, you know, kind of scruffy guys. And you say, you know, somewhere in the Indian Ocean off of Somalia, 2006. Yeah. And then you widen out and it's a, it's a local pirate boat. Yeah. You realize, awesome. holy shit, these guys are still out there. They're still doing it.
so would you have wanted to direct it, just write it? I would be happy to get James Cameron to direct it. I mean, it's it's a movie that will never get made. It's, it needs an all-star cast. It needs Russell Crowe, Juman Hansu, mm -hmm. uh, Meryl Streep, uh, Jennifer Gardner. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and a great villain. Yeah. It, Only as good as your villain, right? Yeah, and I had a great villain. Oh. Totally amoral. He locks the guy. He locks the guy in a in a cargo container as as a jail cell, and he uh, our hero as a matter of fact locks him uh -huh. in, and he gives him two buckets. He says, "Okay, this one for shit, this one for water. Don't mix them up." <laughs> That's a great line. And they lock him. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Mr. Gottlieb, thank you so much. So it, 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 it's called uh, oh, uh, um, privateers. Privateers. Because that's what pirate. That's what letter of mark is a private. A boat that sails under a letter of mark is called a privateer. The last time they were common was during the Civil War because the Confederacy issued a lot of letters of mark because they didn't have a navy, so they needed to break the blockade and harass British shipping. So right. Well, thank you so much for telling us that story. That was amazing. That's I'm so awesome. sorry we didn't get to the Crosby, but I, I, I want to take, you know, as little, I don't want to take all your night. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Hopefully we didn't ask you too many mundane questions and we try well, to get our home. We can get, we can get, get together again and talk about Crosby. Uh, oh. You know, he and I are still friends. We're still doing stuff together. Uh, sorry. I'd love to do that. So, in yeah, a and I'd like to talk about the George Burns comedy we get to do as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, like I said, we try to do our homework. I've got, as much I've as got, a, I've got a full resume. <laughs> you do, but that's what we love. We just love talking to people who have who are econo class like yourself. So, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it, and we'd love to have you back on. I'm going to stop recording, and then we'll say goodbye. Grrrr. <sighs>